0: of the announcements. Congregational meeting is a week from this coming Sunday. It will be on Sunday, February 5th, following the morning worship service. And, of course, we're going to be looking for volunteers to help out with the Chafer Conference on March the 13th through 15th. And then also uh, in April, I don't have the date right in front of me, but in in April, we will be having, mid-April, we're having our... Um, annual church picnic. So everybody needs to get that on their calendar so you know what's coming up. I think it's April the 15th. So get your taxes done early and come out. Have have a good time to forget about it. Okay. Is there one Campo Rete? Yes, Camp the transportation garage sale that they have every year to raise funds for the transportation of the camp will be in late April also at Grace Bible Church. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. because he trusted in thee for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god shall stand forever before we get started we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you are walking uh, by the spirit and prepared to study the word to grow spiritually and to think through what we're studying this evening to be encouraged by it and then uh, then after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon your word. Every one of us is beset by anxieties and fears and insecurities, and yet we know that we can have confidence in you. You are the God who is omniscient. You know all things, and there's nothing hidden from your eyes, and you've known everything from eternity past. You've provided everything for us, and there's no problem or difficulty or challenge in life that we face that you haven't made a provision for already and that you're not there to strengthen us in the midst of uh, facing these things and that as we study in the psalms especially in this particular psalm we realize that 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 faith conquers fear faith overrides fear doesn't necessarily make it go away but it gives us the strength to face our fears and to have real spiritual courage because it's based on your character and the truth of your word as david makes so very clear we pray that you'd encourage us as we study tonight in christ's name amen Okay, we are in 1 Samuel, but tonight we're in Psalm 56, and we're looking at verses 5 through 13. We started the psalm last time uh, focusing on this particular psalm, which according to the uh, beginning of the psalm was written when David was captured and gassed by the Philistines. And you remember that what took place... Is that David was up here in Gibeah of Saul. This is Saul's hometown. He's in the court with Saul, and he Saul tries to kill him. So he fled from there. Uh, he fled to Nob, where the priests were, in order to get food. And from Nob, he headed west to Ekron and on to Gath, and there he's hiding out among the Philistines. So that's the that's the background. We this is all covered in First Samuel chapter twenty-one. The problem is that in 1 Samuel 21, it doesn't mention that he is captured, but apparently he was. Uh, The narratives in the scripture don't tell us everything that happened. They're not a, a history in the way we look at them. But what we see in the history is what took place, what the situation, circumstances were. But in David's Psalms, they help us see what's going on in his soul. And David's just like we are in the sense that he is a a sinner, and we all know a lot about David and his sins. David's a sinner. David is uh, in life-threatening situations, and often we are in insecure situations or very uncomfortable situations, or we feel overwhelmed. Sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're extremely serious. We're threatened by disease. We're threatened by uh, maybe lack of safety on the streets of Houston. Uh, We may be threatened by... Uh, all manner of things. There may be cutthroat competition for jobs, there may be problems with finances, all kinds of things, but we can trust in God. And this is a great psalm, as I pointed out last time, that should encourage us. It's uh, a psalm that is classified as a lament psalm, and lament se- seems Simply means to cry out to God, someone who is going through a serious circumstance. And so David cries out to God, and this is uh, seen clearly in the uh, opening verses. But the thrust of this psalm is really on trust. It's really in the idea of faith in God, and that it's not that the problems, the insecurities, the fears go away and one takes the place of another but it overrides it so that we may still be afraid, we may still have those insecurities, but we're not going to listen to our emotions, we're going to listen to the Word of God. The truth of God's Word always has to override our emotions, our subjective feelings have to be brought into control by the Word of God. That's one of the great benefits of memorizing Scripture, memorizing promises, memorizing verses. Like um, verses 3 and 4. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Or what can anything do to me? Anything in the creation do to me? If God is on our side, uh, who, of course, can be uh, can be against us? And so this is a great hymn. And we see that, these, that two verses, verse 4 and verse 10... Uh, echo each other and function what we might think of as a chorus, and they really highlight the theme of this psalm. Where David says in verse 4, In God I have put my trust, I will not fear. And then in Psalm 56:10, In God I will praise his word. Uh, He repeats that using Yahweh instead of Elohim. He says, in Yahweh, I will praise his word. And and then in verse 11, in God, I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. So that tells us this is one of those great uh, promises like Isaiah 41.10 that we can claim when there are fears, worries, anxieties, Focus on the word to stabilize your emotions rather than on the problem, the issues, the the subjective feelings. We have to, uh, we look at this psalm, there's two basic divisions. The first seven verses, uh, only all powerful God can destroy our enemies. God can destroy any enemy we face. He's more powerful than anything. He's omnipotent. Um, which means he's all-powerful, and because he's also omniscient and knows everything, knows what our worries are, what our fears are, and and he's known about them always because he's eternal, then God is never surprised. We're surprised, and we end up getting all wrapped up around the certain circumstances uh, rather than wrapping ourselves up around God and around his word. So the first part of the psalm, we're still in the middle of that, uh, only all-powerful God can destroy our enemies. To him we must appeal for protection and deliverance. And that's what he's doing. He's appealing to God in verse 1, be merciful. And the word there is also a word that can it can be translated grace, but it, it's mercy is the application of grace. And he's saying, be merciful to me, O God, uh, for man would, and I translated that last time. Man would crush me, you know. Fighting all day, he 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 presses uh, presses upon me and squeezes me. And then that same word is used again in verse two. My enemies would hound me, and actually, it's the same word in the uh that we saw last time. That there's this external uh, pressure. And he's focusing on that and so he appeals to God for protection and deliverance. Then in the second half of the Psalm, which we'll go through tonight as well, we are reminded that God cares for us. And and the imagery that's used there is is quite significant because we think sometimes I've heard people say this, well, I don't want to pray about that because I don't want to bother God about this little thing. It's like God can't handle every situation. He, he, he multitask at levels that no, no, nothing we can ever do could even approach. We cannot overwhelm the grace of God or the knowledge of God, but we, we tend to do that. Oh, I don't want to bother God. Well, God wants to be bothered. He doesn't want us bothering anybody else with it. He wants us to bother him with it. So when we try, when we understand that, we understand his care. That increases our confidence in him and, um, and that. So we look at the, the, the psalm starts off with the focus of this situation in Gath. And when we get to the end, he's going to make a vow of praise. And that's where Psalm 34 came in. Uh, we skipped over Psalm 56 in the order of events. This actually takes us back before Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is the praise psalm, the public praise that is the outworking of his vow to praise God. So he uh, talks about our uh, calls upon God to be merciful to him, describes his enemies. It's continual. The, the grammar of the text indicates that it's going on all day, uh, fighting all day. He squeezes me. He pressures me. Uh, So that imagery of crushing and pressures, the same thing that we talk of in terms of stress. We're just being overwhelmed by circumstances. But he's got enemies that want to kill him, that want to destroy him, and they have captured him, and his life is truly in danger. Verse 2, my enemies would crush me or, excuse me, my enemies would pressure me or squeeze me, oppress me all, all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. And by using that title, O Most High, he's emphasizing God's omnipotence again, that he's higher than everything. Now, these enemies are elevating themselves, but God is even higher. We're going to see that in his prayer, a little further down, He's going to pray that God would cast down the peoples, verse 7. That's because they're arrogant. They're high. They've elevated themselves. God is higher. So we have this movement of up and down. They've elevated themselves in arrogance. This is what people do. All of us do that at times. But as his enemies, they're uh, giving themselves... Uh, uh, powers and abilities far beyond their capability. And he's recognizing they may be arrogant and raising themselves to high levels, but God is even higher. And then he will call upon God to cast them down. In verse 3, we read, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. That's the solution. Faith conquers fear. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. The imagery there is at any day, that's literally what it means, any day uh, that I'm afraid, any time I'm afraid is the idiom. I will trust in you and God. And then there's a focus on his word, his promise, what God has revealed. And God, I will praise his word. That's how we know about God. That's how we know what he can do. And God, I've put my trust. I will not fear. And so as we looked at this last time, I focused on uh, both phrases, verse 3, I will trust. Uh, and in Psalm 56, 4, I have put my trust. So there, the grammar is slightly different, but it's the idea that that of, of stating what I will do. This is, this is what my application is, I will trust him. And then verse 4 is talking about what he has done, so it's a past tense. But the idea of batach there is the idea of trust. It's the idea of confidence. It's the idea of certainty that God is bigger than any problem that I've got. He's bigger than any people that oppress me. He's bigger than any circumstance or situation, no matter how overwhelming it is. God is the one who provides security. God is really our safe space. There is no other safe space. Security and safety can't be found in situations or circumstances or people or money or any of the details of life. The only place where there's true security is in in God and trusting in him. And then I pointed out, because we'll come back and look at uh, at least one more preposition. We'll see the the second one, but again, but in verse four, he says in God, or in verse three, rather, he says, I will trust in you. And in verse four, he says in God, in God, I will trust. But these two words that are both translated in, in English, mean different things because they're different prepositions in the English. And it's a fascinating study to look at prepositions and and translating them over into English. Because in English we'll we'll have the sentence like I like being filled with the Spirit. And it translates some places it uses the word with the Spirit and in the Greek it's all the same preposition the greek preposition in plus spirit another place it's by the spirit another place it'll be translated in the spirit but yet it's all the same preposition in the greek and that gets very confusing for a lot of people and it's caused historic confusion that's one of the reasons we got a charismatic movement is they didn't understand uh what it meant to be baptized um by the spirit they saw in one place it was with the spirit another place it was by the spirit. So they thought that was two different baptisms and that that, the rest is history. It's one baptism. All the most of those phrases with the spirit, almost all of them should be translated, uh, by means of the spirit. So it's really important to understand, uh, these kinds of things. So you could say, I was walking with a friend. Okay. With their means, uh, uh, is an idea of association. I'm with someone. I'm associated with someone. You could say I I I, I have to walk, but I but I have to I, I can walk, but I have to walk with a cane. Well, with, with is the same word, but it has a totally different idea. You walk with a cane. You have the idea of means. I'm walking by by means of of, of a cane. So so we have to look at these words, and they're important. And so. That word, "I will trust in you," shows movement towards something. I am moving my my thinking. I'm moving my focus onto God. It's it's that idea. It's the Hebrew word "l," which means which has the idea of something that's directional. So it's emphasizing the direction of faith, which is in God. And then immediately after that, he says, "In God," but it's not "l" again. It's B, and there it's it's focusing on in, it's it's narrowing it to the object of faith. So there's a directional idea uh where in the direction I'm placing my faith, and then in verse 4, it's more the idea of the object of faith. It's not faith that has power, and this is a big thing in a lot of mind-control cults, and these ideas have come over into a lot of evangelical Christianity, this idea that, that if I can just think it, I can do it. And uh, this became very popular coming out of the 19th century. A lot of those ideas got picked up in the faith healing movements, in the charismatic movements. And um, you get this idea that if I just believe hard enough, it can happen. Well, it's not it's not faith in faith. Faith isn't some mystical power. Faith is just believing something to be true, but if the something you're believing to be true isn't true, then it's a useless faith. It's the object of faith that is significant. So if your faith is in God, who is omnipotent, who is greater than all circumstances and knows all circumstances and has designed uh, and has given us promises related to these things, then we can trust in him. He's the one worthy, and it's related to his word because... God mediates his knowledge through his word. What I mean by that is we don't just leap into thinking, well, this is what I think God ought to do. God tells us what he will do and what he won't do. I remember having conversations uh, with uh, uh, people, usually charismatics back in the 80s and 90s, and they'd say, well, you're putting God in a box. You may have heard that you're just limiting God. No, I'm not limiting God. His word limits him. We have to stick with what he works. We don't know anything about God other than what he has revealed to us. And if he has revealed that he won't do certain things under certain circumstances, he won't do it because he's true to his word. We have to know his word. It's not what I think he should do. It's what he has said he will or will not do. So we only know who God is through his word. We only know what God will do through His Word. That's why it's so important to know His Word, to read it over and over and over again, and to uh, read it. Sometimes, if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, it's helpful to read in different translations. I had a seminary professor, was a Greek professor, and he would read through the Bible. Um, in different translations every year, and every year he would read through his Greek text, and he impressed me. I had him for a theology course the first semester, and he would stand up there uh, and teach us from, his, and he'd just hold his Greek text, and he'd say, now turn over this verse, and he'd turn over to it, and he would just teach from from the Greek text. So he was very knowledgeable, but he read through the English, because he different translations bring out different nuances in uh, different different words, so that's important in God, but it's His Word that teaches us. So David says, "In God I put my trust; I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Minimizing man, the creature cannot uh, elevate himself to be a threat to the Creator." Now, getting into a new section, the verses we didn't cover last time, and David's problem is clearly articulated starting in verse 5. 5 and 6 articulate the problem. But verse 7, he cries to God for a solution. So he articulates that problem. And what we need to learn to do is to pour out our complaints to God, is to explain to God what the situation is, what the problem is, uh, and to identify it. And it's not whining. If you tell me it's whining, if you tell your somebody your other friends it's whining, if you tell God it's prayer, okay? And I've heard people say that too. Well, I don't want to whine to God. Wait a minute, have you read the Psalms lately? David is pouring out his heart. I mean, he's in situations life-threatening, he's calling to God to deliver him and to save him. That's not whining, complaining or murmuring. If it's directed to God and you're seeking God's aid to solve the problem. Now, if you're going to God and you've got a litany of problems and all you want to do is blame God for everything and you're not seeking help, well, that's when it crosses the line. But here we need to see what David is doing. He says he's describing his enemies and he says all day they twist. My words, all their thoughts are against me for evil, so he 's talking about two different areas that we would classify as sins there's sins of the tongue, and there 's mental attitude sins their their thoughts we 'll look at the language there in just a minute. then beyond that, they uh, they get together, they are gathering together where it 's more than just gathering together as we 'll see with the with the language in just a minute. They hide, they mark my steps. We'll explain that, what that actually means in a second. When they lie in wait for my life. So the picture here, though, is one of of they're ganging up against me. And they have the power to destroy me. And I have to explain this to God. Not that God doesn't know, but he's explaining that to God. And then he's going to cry out to God in a specific way in verse 7 so looking at them together it starts off all day that emphasizes this is continuous action plus the the verb tense is in the uh, is in the pl imperfect that imperfect tense indicates continuous action and uh, so he says all day uh, they twist my words And this is an interesting word because Hebrew has several words that have very different meanings. And so some of the translations translate it um, in the sense of twisting. But I was consulting today. I got a new expensive lexicon a couple of months ago electronically. It's not complete, but it's the... A Dictionary of Classical Hebrew. When it's complete, it's going to be seven volumes. So that's pretty good, considering other lexica up to this point have been only one or one plus a small, much smaller volume. So this is pretty thorough, and it understands this word to have the idea of verbal abuse. So it probably originally had the idea of twisting something, and then it's applied to language. And then if you're twisting physically, it might have had the idea initially of like twisting an arm. And that creates a lot of pain. So then it would move from that idea metaphorically to twisting words that also cause a lot of pain. And that would be used then uh, figuratively to relate to verbal abuse, which causes Pain, verbal abuse or reproach or bad-mouthing or, or just giving in, insults. And that's what they're doing. They've got David as a prisoner and they're insulting him and they're reviling him and they're reproaching him, much like uh, Jesus was reviled by the Roman soldiers. So all day he says they are abusing me verbally. And then he says, not only that verbal sins, but all their thoughts are against me for evil. And this is uh, the Hebrew word, which has the idea of inner thoughts or plans. They're planning to do things and they're telling them about him, how they're going to torture him, how they're going to kill him uh, using uh, uh, psyops to th- uh, threaten him and cause him to be, uh, to be in much fear. And so, this is the uh, situation that they had set set up uh, by him uh, by him, and so uh, they twist his words, uh, their thoughts are against me for evil, and then verse six continues this. not only are they uh, abusing me verbally, and then their plans continue to develop to torture me and to kill me says they gather together they hide they mark their steps now these are three separate words that are used in scripture the first word is the word "gur," which is an in- interesting word this word is used in a lot of times in genesis as it talks about the travels the movements of abraham and, and sarah they're they're sojourners that's how that word is usually translated in, in the King James Version, uh, they're moving around, but here it has the idea of stirring something up. Okay, so they're stirring things up. They're they're trying to cause trouble. They're trying to uh, get other people involved to uh, torture David. And then the second word that's used is the word hide, but this is the word safan, which has the idea more of sneaking around. So this idea, they're they're constantly stirring up trouble, all directed at David, all directed to killing him. And then uh, marking his steps, it's the word shamar. It's a word that's sometimes translated to keep or watch or or preserve. But this is a word that has also the idea of uh, watching uh, watching his steps, uh, watching over him. Uh, trying to uh, cre- take, create a situation and take advantage of that situation. So as we look at this in these, these verses, we recognize that David is in a situation where he is being verbally assaulted. Now, whenever we get in a situation where we are verbally assaulted, there are Uh, A couple of different things that we can do we can react to that situation and we can revile back but that's not what we've been reading in first peter don't revile somebody reviles or abuses you return blessing to that so not only that but you when you're a prisoner you don't want to escalate the situation uh, with those who have you as captive. So you need to exercise wisdom and and uh, keep your mouth shut and not do anything to escalate that kind of a situation. As believers, we have to rise above these circumstances. Sometimes it may not be um, uh, the same kind of situation, but we may become victims of sins of the tongue, whether it's gossip or maligning, uh, whether it's slander, uh, it could be just vile abusive stuff today I read a firsthand account of a of a teacher who had planned several months ago before the election to take a group of of uh, about fifteen high school kids to washington d c for the inauguration, whoever it was for the inauguration and also for since they were going to stay over and see various uh, monuments and uh, go to different different places on on Saturday after the inauguration, and so they went down early on they went to the inauguration they saw some of the protesters uh, that were keeping some people from going on to the uh, uh, in, going in where they could hear and witness the inauguration. And then on Saturday, when they had this women's march, they were down there early. They went to uh, one of the Smithsonian museums. But then when they came out, the crowds had just mushroomed, and they could hardly move. And she had all the kids lock, um, lock arms, and the kids had picked up Trump hats the day before, and were wearing them they didn't want to put them in their luggage because they would crush him and they and she describes these vile abusive uh insults and and the threats that uh these women uh threw their way and she's very objective she says i had many friends who were there they would not have done that uh not everybody who was involved in the women's march was that way but she said we ran into some people who were just absolutely horrible and they were getting in the face of these kids and they were trying to pull them apart to to separate them but the kids were able to hang on to each other and she had told the kids no matter what anybody says you keep your mouth shut and don't don't retaliate don't retort just just keep your eyes forward and stick together and that's how they survived she said uh, she said the crowd was so worked up that if anybody had retaliated or said anything it would have just caused an absolutely absolute mob scene and it would have been completely out of out of control but this was just terrible for those kids but it's an illustration of this kind of thing in some situations the best thing for us to do is to keep our mouths shut there are circumstances and situations Jesus said, we're throwing pearls before swine. I have been that way with believers where it doesn't matter what I say. They're not going to listen. Their mind's made up. Don't confuse them with facts, exegesis, good theology. It's not a learning situation. And it's that way in situations you may face at at work, in your employment. You may face it that way at times in marriage and family, uh, with friends. You just keep your mouth shut and you exercise grace. The more I study this, the more I understand that the primary thing that believers need to do is just be gracious to people and to rise above it. Don't retaliate. Don't, um, don't try to re- return insult for insult. Don't escalate the situation. De-escalate the situation and seek peace and harmony. That doesn't mean that you give up or you quit or you're being rolled over. It's that nobody benefits when you escalate situations and you re- react and revile for reviling. Just just for the sake, it just intensifies uh, the whole circumstance And you it, it, so that there can be something constructive. You have to uh, de- de-escalate that situation, and that's what... what um, David realizes there he keeps his mouth shut, and he talks to the one person though that can do something uh, about it, and that 's God and We see this in verse seven verse seven before we get there one one verse that I think is important to maybe memorize at least understand the principle that whenever you 're in a situation where you are the object of a lot of hostility. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12:20. Actually, it's a quote from Proverbs 25, uh, 22, and 23. Or 21 and 22, excuse me. Therefore, he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Now, this isn't the Sermon on the Mount, it's Proverbs, but it's quoted by Paul in the New Testament. This goes against every natural inclination of our sin nature. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, not poisoned. Okay, I read your mind. If you're hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, the reason you're doing it should not be to heap coals of fire on his head. I mean, that was the first thing I ever, I remember hearing this in high school and somebody say, oh, if you really want to get back at somebody, you just be really nice to them when they've been mean to them. And that's just going to heap coals of fire on their head. But that um, Kyle and Delitz commentary on the Old Testament, I'm not sure which one wrote the commentary on Proverbs, uh, makes this statement. Now we say indeed that he who rewards evil with good takes the noblest revenge. That's the high ground. And that's, that's what we should do. Somebody, somebody sinks to the gutter. We don't try to get under the gutter. That's what has disappointed me so much in this, the national dialogue of this last election cycle. There were things that Donald Trump said that were vile and despicable and everybody ought to reject. Well, what what did we hear this last weekend? We heard a bunch of women who went lower than that. Now, that's not true for all the women that were there, but it was true for some of the celebrity speakers that were there. They went lower than he did. That doesn't help anything. We have to elevate the conversation, not destroy the country, and not destroy ourselves. You never return evil for evil, especially if you're a Christian. Anyway, so Kyle and Delitzsch go on to say, He who rewards evil with good takes the noblest revenge. But if this doing of good uh, proceeds from a revengeful aim and is intended sensibly to humble an adversary, then it loses all its moral worth and is changed into selfish, malicious wickedness. So you have to have the right motives. And that can only come if you're loving one another or if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, as Scripture says. So this is what's going on here. And in Psalm fifty six five uh, David is reacting to their to their verbal to their verbal sins. And this is how he concludes it looking at verse seven. Looking at verse seven, he says Shall they escape iniquity? And here he is uh, asking a rhetorical question now the reason that you ask a rhetorical question is not because you're trying to find out um, information a rhetorical question is designed to get people to think about what you're saying so why do you think he's asking a rhetorical question See, I'm asking a rhetorical question so you'll think about it, illustrating what I'm trying to teach you. A rhetorical question is one of thousands of um, figures of speech listed in Bullinger's three-inch-thick volume called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, and he usually lists them by either their Greek or their Latin name. And the uh, I believe this is a Greek name is erotesis, E-R-O-T-E-S-I-S. That's the technical name for a rhetorical question. It is when you, when a speaker asks a question without expecting an answer. And they do this to get people to either affirm what they are saying or to make a demonstration or get people to think about other things or to, for a lot of different different reasons. Bullinger says that instead of making a plain and direct statement, a speaker suddenly changes his style and puts what he was about to say or could otherwise have said into the form of a question, sort of stating it as a a statement of fact. He puts it in the form of a question without waiting for an answer. Instead of declaring a conviction or expressing indignation, or vindicating authority, he puts it in the form of a question without expecting a reply. For example, in Psalm 2 1, the psalmist begins, Why do the nations rage? And then he goes on, He doesn't expect an answer, it's, a, it's to get you to think. So here in verse 7, David reaches this conclusion after stating in verses uh, uh, 5 and 6 what the bad guys are doing to him. He says, Should they escape? By iniquity, in other words, should they get away with this in anger, this is where he states it in anger, cast down the peoples, o God that 's appropriate because of the language here. The word peoples is a term that is used sometimes it 's referred to the people of israel am israel. Um, Here it refers to, it's a synonym for the Gentiles, and he is captured by the Gentiles, by the Philistines. But what I always like to point out is it's in anger. Now, we translate that as anger, and we say, God has anger. I don't think so. I don't think so. I got into a discussion with a theologian one time, and they, they had written a paper that God has emotion, and they'd used one of these examples about God's anger. And I said, but that's really just a figure of speech. And they said, no, it isn't. And I said, look in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word there for anger is the word af. Af literally means nose. What happens when you get angry? your face gets all red and blustery and your nose gets all red so what the what the hebrews would say if you're angry they'd say your nose burned or just shortened it to nose okay it's a figure of speech it's an anthropomorphism an anthropomorphism is when you attribute to god some physical attribute of man that God doesn't actually possess, like the eyes of God go to and fro across the face of the earth. He doesn't have eyes, okay? Or the arm of God. Uh, he doesn't have an arm, but it's talking about his his power or his strength. So God doesn't have a nose. So obviously this is a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism. Uh, but it's an anthropomorphism that is used to express an emotion that, like an anthropomorphism, God doesn't actually possess. Okay? So it's a double figure of speech. And that means that what it's expressing is God's justice, that God should should act, in, interfere, in, and uh, intervene in justice— We do the same thing in English. We talk about somebody who goes to court, they stand before a judge, and the judge gives them the full sentence of the law, and you say, well, that judge was mad. He threw the book at him. Well, if he's any kind of judge, he's not going to be emotional. He's going to objectively evaluate all of the evidence and draw a conclusion. And if that conclusion is that he deserves complete, full punishment under the law, then we say he threw the book at him. But that's, we're not talking about emotion there. So we have to be very, very careful with this because emotion is a response to something. And if God is responding to human decisions, that creates a little bit of a problem because God has known about those human decisions for eternity. So has God been eternally angry? Because when... Uh, the Israelites rebel against God in the desert and they experience the wrath of God. If God has known about their rebellion for eternity, then has God been eternally wrathful? Ah, see, now you start getting into some real problems that affect the character of God. No, but God is just and God is going to uh, righteously judge Uh, a people so that's what's going on here david is calling upon god metaphorically to judge these people in anger cast down the people and the idea of casting down is the idea they've elevated themselves in arrogance god needs to uh bring them down cut them down to size as we would say in english and then he shifts the focus In verse 8, rather than talking about his enemy, now he begins to talk about God. In verses 8 through 10, or actually 8 through 11, he's going to talk about God's response to our suffering in verses 8 and 9, and then he's going to talk about why he can trust God, why he has confidence in God in verses 10 and 11. And the confidence in God grows out of his understanding about how God pays attention to our suffering. So in verse 8, in verse 8, we read, You number my wanderings. You number my wanderings. Then he says, Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? So this emphasizes God's care for the believer, which Because David understands his care for the believer in suffering, it uh, brings forth David's confidence in God and eventually his vow to uh, praise God for his grace and favor. So as, as David looks on this situation and thinks about it and reflects upon how God delivers him, he realizes the depth of God's care and involvement, and he expresses this in a really significant way. He uses two different figures of speech uh, in order to express this, two cultural idioms. One is the idiom of a record book. That's in the first line and the third line. And the middle line is one that has always impressed me, is it has to do with the, the, the profound attention that God gives to us in our suffering. The first line says, you number my wanderings. And the verb there is safer. This is the verb form of the, of the noun for a scribe. A scribe was a sofer. And the plural was soferim. I know a Jewish man here in town, whose last name is Sofer. He probably is a descendant from scribes. The meaning of of the verb safer means to number, to count. Uh, And it has to do with giving an accounting of something. And the way that came to be applied to scribes is they counted every letter in the Hebrew Bible. They counted every word in every line, every word in every paragraph, every word on every page. So that when they were making copies by hand, they could look at a page and they would know exactly how many words were supposed to be on that page, how many words in each line, how many words in each paragraph, and they could count the words to see if they had missed anything. And so they had to have great uh, capabilities in numbers, something that uh, somehow missed me genetically. Uh, You number my wanderings as saying that, God, you are paying intricate attention And you are writing in your accounting ledger information about every minor suffering, big or small, every time I face suffering, you're writing it down in your record book. You are not missing a thing. That's the point. It's not talking about a literal record book, but it's making that analogy to emphasize that God pays close attention to every detail, the minutest details, the heartaches, the difficulties, the sufferings, the disappointments, the fears, the anxieties. God is paying close attention. So David says, you number my wanderings. And that's the word node. Um, for wanderings, and uh, it it has the idea of of someone who is a vagrant almost, and in fact it's used that way as an in the noun form to refer to Cain in Genesis chapter three that he was like a a, a vagrant uh, that was he was a vagabond. Who was wandering the earth so that 's the um, that 's the uh, verb form uh, of this this uh, this noun so david says i 'm wandering around what 's he been doing he 's running from saul he 's looking for hiding places and he 's saying god you 're paying attention to every detail, where I go, what I do, you are right there with me and then, in the next line. He says, "Put my tears into your bottle now, <clears throat> the word for bottle is this word on the far right node. Wait a minute. see this word is node n o d and this little apostrophe here represents a consonant, sort of a little guttural stop, uh, but they sound alike it's it's a uh, it's a homonym they sound sound alike, so it's a play on words to get our attention." that God numbers our wanderings, which often involve suffering, and he pays attention to them, so he uses the word node for bottle here. Now, this could refer to a, uh, a, bo- a bottle that's made out of skin. I've seen these in the, in the ancient world, and they were very, very small. They were bottles that were used for collecting tears at the time of a funeral. So that if you are grieving over the loss of somebody, you would get one of these little bottles and you would collect your tears and you would save them as a reminder of your grief during that time of loss. And so what David is saying here is, God, put my tears, I'm going through this suffering, put my tears in your bottle. In other words, God, you're going to pay attention to my tears, my sorrows, my sufferings. They're not just, you're not busy with other things. You understand every detail that I'm going through, and you understand my suffering. And then he goes back in the third line. He says, are they, that is the suffering, are they not in your book? That's what he's talking about. Haven't you kept a record of this? So this has always been a great verse of comfort to me especially in times of difficulty, times of suffering, times of uncertainty and insecurity, is that God is paying attention, and God is not ignoring me. Uh, We may think that God is busy taking care of the military in Iraq or in Afghanistan or somewhere else, But God is also omnipotent and omnipresent, and he's just as focused as you are on you as he is on other things. So he pays close attention. So verse 8 tells us that God is aware of every little heartache, every little emotional bump that we go through. God is aware, and he cares. He is concerned about us. And so David says what his, so describes his solution in verse 9. See, we often talk about the spiritual skills and the problem-solving devices, and, and all of these, are, or many of them, are expressed in this psalm. We have uh, the expression, of the faith-rest-drill, he's trusting God, uh, grace-orientation in his calling out to God to be merciful to him. We have the expression of his doctrinal orientation. He understands the truth of God's word in terms of his power. He is called almost high. Uh, He knows that he can trust in God because he has specific content. He knows the word. He keeps coming back to this as he will in verse uh, verse 10, in God, I will praise his word. So he's He's oriented to doctrine. He has a personal sense of destiny. He's calling on God to deliver him because God's made a promise. He said, I'm going to make you king. You're going to be the Messiah. And you're a Messianic king. You're going to be the king of Israel. So God's going to fulfill that. So he knows what his destiny is. So he's, he's using that. He's got personal love for God. The, the, the pages of these Psalms just, just drip with, with evidence of David's love for God. He has a, a a love for his enemies uh, at times he has uh, at, at times he wants God to judge him at other times he shows a love for his for his enemies he 's occupied with God in the old testament we 've occupation with Christ in the New Testament and all of those are implemented in various ways at various times through our prayers we when we pray that is how we take. Our faith rest drill, mixing faith with promises, and target it toward God. When we are, uh, are, are, are are oriented to God's grace, we're crying out to God in terms, Be merciful to me. I don't deserve it, but you have shown me mercy in saving me. Show mercy in delivering me from this situation. So prayer is how we target many of those spiritual skills toward God. So David says, when I cry out to you, that's what he was doing back in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. If you intervene, see, the assumption is, this: when I cry out to you, he skips over this, but the assumption is, when I cry out to you, you're going to intervene. You're going to come to my aid, and then my enemies will turn back. And then he expresses... His confidence there he said this I know because God is for me he knows that that's doctrinal orientation he knows that God is on his side it reminds us of uh, uh, of Romans 831 when Paul says what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us God plus 1 is a majority so he knows this and it's uh, the verb he uses here in the in the Hebrew is yada, which indicates a knowledge that comes from experience. He has seen God deliver him time and time. again. You know, what did he tell Saul? Whenever the bear, whenever the lion came in, I would defeat him. He was trusting God to help him protect, uh, protect the sheep. So he knows that God protects him. And that has strengthened him. That's why we have to use these promises and drill ourselves time and time and time again. Because when we pray, God answers our prayer. When he delivers us, it strengthens our confidence, strengthens our faith. This is how we grow. This is how we mature. In verse 10, he echoes what he has said earlier back in verse 4. He says, in God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. Note that in the first line he says, in God, whenever you have the word God with the O and the D in lowercase letters in the Old Testament, that's a translation of Elohim. And then in the uh, synonymous parallelism, in the second line, it's saying in Yahweh, when you have the uppercase words with Lord, that means it's translating uh, Yahweh. And in both of these cases, it's using the Hebrew preposition ba, meaning the object of faith. He is, his faith is in God. It is God who has the strength and the power, not faith. We put our focus on God, on his promises. He's the one with the power. Uh, just as in salvation, we trust in Christ. It's not the faith that saves. It's Christ who saves. It's the object of the faith that has power, not the faith itself so it's clearly expressing the object of his faith but then the next verse begins with the same phrase in english in god i have put my trust but it's a different word for in has a different slightly different sense it has the idea that it's upon god or over god god is the one on whom i am trusting so it's not just expressing he is the object of my trust, but I am relying upon him. I'm leaning upon him. I am putting everything. It's First it's, uh, Peter 5, 7, casting all our care upon him because he cares for us. In verse 11, then he uses again the same word he used for trust earlier, the word batak in God are on God, I'm relying on Him, I place my confidence upon Him, He is the one who's going to keep me secure and safe. The result is, I will not be afraid, I will not fear, I will not give in to anxieties and worries and cares and concerns because I've cast them on the Lord. So what can man do to me? Earlier he asked the question, what can flesh do to me? Here he just uses a different word indicating What can any of God's creatures do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? And then in verse 12, he's going to state uh, his vow. This was typical in a psalm where the psalmist would end by saying, I'm going to vow to go to the temple and to praise you and to to declare what you have done uh, before others so that their faith in you will be strengthened by how you have intervened in my life. Your vows, the vows that I have made to you, are binding upon me. And sometimes uh, uh, these these are uh, this word that expresses vow what it is means what it's what he's saying, which is I'm vowing to make a thank offering, uh, bring sacrifices to the temple. And so he said, this is binding upon me. And I will render praises to you, so he's going to bring an offering into the to the tabernacle in order to praise uh, to praise others and then he explains why in verse thirteen, why for you've delivered my soul from death. Uh, I was captured by the Philistines; they were going to kill me, but you delivered me. We learn how he delivered him in the text because he feigned madness, he faked madness. And we learn that uh, more about it when we look at Psalm 34, which is the praise psalm he wrote uh, in fulfillment of this vow uh, to praise God. So he explains that you've delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? I I, I could have fallen. He's using that idea of my falling down as a uh, figure of speech for death. Why? Is he doing this? That's the last line in the Psalm. That I may walk before God, not so that I'll just be delivered, not that it's so I'll just be survived, but the purpose for the deliverance is that I can walk before God. Walking is a metaphor for the Christian way of life, the believer's way of life in the Old Testament, that I may walk before God in the land of the living, that I may fulfill God's plan and purpose for my life, and that he may be glorified. That's why God saves us. He doesn't save us just to get us out of a mess. He saves us so that we can glorify him and fulfill our mission in terms of our personal sense of destiny. So that helps us to understand Psalm 56. There's another psalm that's going to come in right after this that fits with 1 Samuel chapter 22. And so we will go there uh, next time. So we're working our way through these psalms that David wrote. While he is running from Saul in the wilderness. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged by this psalm, be reminded that faith conquers fear, that all of our worries and fears, anxieties, insecurities are just to be cast upon you. And when we do that, then we're free to truly love people, to make ourselves vulnerable, to love people, to uh, treat them with the kindness and the generosity of your grace. And not to retaliate in kind to to those who have harmed us or hurt us or wish to do us harm. Father, we pray that our lives might, we may constantly be aware that our lives are to be a testimony of your grace and your goodness, that ultimately we can articulate the gospel to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.